0: What is the Great Leap Forward? What happened during Mao's Cultural Revolution, and what can we learn about it for our times today? How does Mao's cult of personality form, and why does it matter? How did Mao affect China and the way it interacts today? We will learn the answers to these questions and many more in today's episode, part two of the last 100-ish years in China. Welcome to Wiser World, a podcast for busy people who need a refresher on all things world. Here we explore different regions of the globe, giving you the facts and context you need to think historically about current events. I truly believe that the more we learn about the world, the more we embrace our shared humanity. I'm your host, Ali Roper. Thanks for being here.
1: As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China.
0: Welcome back, this should go without saying, but if you haven't listened to part one of the last 100 years in China, you should definitely go back and do that. I use words and vocab in this episode that will not make sense without that foundational knowledge. And I also wanna add that some of the material in these episodes is really heavy. This episode is probably the most violent of the episodes on China. So just know I would screen this, make sure it's the right maturity level for your kids and teenagers. All right, let's keep going. Today we are going to focus on China from just the 1950s to the 1970s. And I know that that's a lot less time than the previous episode, but this particular time is very critical for Chinese history. And these two movements that we're going to discuss, I think they deserve their own episode. There's a lot on these two movements. So at the end of episode one, we were at the point where Mao Zedong and the communists have taken over mainland China They call the country the People's Republic of China, or the PRC, which it's still called today. Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists have left the mainland. They now live in Taiwan, and disputes over Taiwan and China continue. So that's kind of where we left off. We saw that China was humiliated by Western uneven trades. They had issues with Japan. We saw the opium wars. This all kind of was episode one, right? So let's see what happens now that the communists have taken over the country. So after winning the Civil War, Mao went to Moscow to get recognition and help from who is the leader? Stalin. He signs a treaty of friendship and alliance with the Soviet Union with Stalin. And let's just talk for a brief second about Mao's relationship with him. So the Soviet Union, particularly Stalin, made a huge difference in the way that Mao saw the world. Stalin had had given Mao money for years during the Civil War, but he didn't always support Mao in other ways. And he was kind of suspicious of Mao because Stalin was suspicious of almost anyone, if you'll remember from the Russia episodes. And Mao hated being snubbed by Stalin. But at the same time, The soviet union was the only country that he could rely on for some support he certainly wasn't going to get it from britain or the united states right this is post-world war ii so mao goes back to china he now has to build a nation okay the theoretical idea of communism is a command economy or an economy that's run by the state or the government it means that in this case the idea was that most businesses would be taken from business owners But many times the state would allow the original owner to keep running the business but they just had to report to the government for now. So to run a government of this nature of commanding every part of the economy in a country the size of China requires a lot of people. In the books I read I was honestly so astonished I was astonished I was astounded at the amount of Chinese people that were communist party members. These diplomats members of the party who worked for the government. They were assigned jobs all over the nation or even outside of the nation to get things done. And Mao Zedong became the chairman of the CCP or Chinese Communist Party. So whenever I say CCP, that's what I'm talking about. This is why he's often called Chairman Mao. And he was one of the principal architects of the People's Republic of China. He was not the only one though. There were many other important leaders during this time, but we're gonna talk mostly about Mao because in these next 20 years, He is a major forefront figure and is very important. So the first step that the communists had to take was to take control. China had been mayhem for a long time. And the goal of the communists was to create a strong, modern, industrialized China. No more backward, no more behind. They created a new political structure. There was a communist party branch in every city and town. People were organized into work units. And the government had direct control over their lives. So... Many intellectuals and scholars wanted to work for the government. In one of the books that I read, both the author, her mother and father, worked for the Communist Party as specialists and translators. They could speak multiple languages. They would go to Moscow. They would go to parts of Eastern Europe. Many of these intellectuals had come from wealthy families, and it was beginning to be seen poorly to be rich because remember that the Communist Party won the civil war based on this idea of championing the poor right so to be rich was not viewed positively by the communist party so these rich these intellectuals that were coming from wealthy families they would denounce their families never speak to them again and if you had a rich background you were not given very important jobs in the communist party at this time but they needed the intellect of these people to start getting the ball rolling right so right from the start the communist party sets up a, and a quote, campaign to suppress counter-revolutionaries. Land is taken away from the rich, it's given to the poor. They encouraged farmers to overthrow their former landlords in exchange for plots of land. So they were encouraged to use violent means. They were even given quotas for how many people to denounce and humiliate, beat, even kill. And the, pe- the peasant's hatred of anyone rich was whipped up by the Communist Party, which wasn't probably very hard to do. They had this commonality, like, let's get the masses of peasants who are angry with the rich to take out the rich. And they actually had killing quotas. The idea was one per thousand, but in many parts of the country, it was more than that. Entire and villages were razed to the ground. School children as young as six were accused of spying for the enemy or counter revolutionaries, capitalists, tortured to death. By the end of 1951, it is said that close to two million people had been murdered, sometimes very publicly right off the bat the communist party comes out swinging here's an interesting quote from a book that i read written by a historian who spent years and years going through communist party data violence was the revolution but it needed to be inflicted only occasionally to be effective fear and intimidation were its trusted companions and they were widely used people were encouraged to transform themselves into what the communists called new people Everywhere, in government offices, factories, workshops, schools, and universities, they were re-educated and made to study newspapers and textbooks, learning the right answers, the right ideas, and the right slogans. End of quote. All right, so the violence didn't actually, it kind of abated after a few years, but thought reform never ended. People were taught to scrutinize their every belief, if they have any kind of rich mindset mindset. They needed to conform again and again. There were assembled crowds or study sessions, and they were always strictly supervised. And people were asked to write confessions or denounce their friends or justify what they did in the past during the Civil War. And one victim of this called it a carefully cultivated Auschwitz of the mind. Very interesting. So the idea, again, was to get the peasants' trust, put them in power right from the start, denounce wealthy people. And right at this time was the Korean War, and China took the stance of resist America, support Korea, or North Korea in this case. So Mao supported the North Koreans. Another quote for you. It says, yet much of the regime of Mao was founded on more than mere violence and intimidation. The history of communism in China is also a history of promises made and promises broken. The communists wanted to woo before they could take control. Like Lenin and the Bolsheviks, Mao achieved power by promising every disaffected group what they wanted most land for the farmers independence for the minorities freedom for the intellectuals protection of private property for businessmen higher living standards for the workers the Chinese Communist Party rallied a majority under the banner of the new democracy a slogan promising cooperation with all except the most hardened enemies of the regime under this facade of a united front A number of non-communist organizations co-opted into the Communist Party, and they remained under the leadership of the Communist Party. In this way of wooing, the Communist Party government enacts a new marriage law, which actually reduced the demands on women. They outlawed foot binding, which, if you don't know what that is, it basically was done for a very, very long time in China. They would break a woman's foot, keep it very small, and it was considered beautiful in China to have small feet as a woman, but it would severely limit their physical mobility and the pictures are horrific if you want to go check them out. But the Chinese communists did away with this and they championed the idea of marriages not being arranged and that women could now divorce their husbands. So during these early years, there are some positives, right? Life for Chinese women did improve and many women did join the communist party. But unfortunately, one by one, these promises were broken and Mao was a master of of strategy. The idea was win over the majority, oppose the minority, crush all enemies separately. In 1951, the regime turned against former government servants. In 1952, the business community was attacked. Entrepreneurs were dragged to denunciation meetings where they had to confront their employees who were obviously worked up and they would have to stand in front of them and denounce what they had done. And then a new legal system inspired by the Soviet Union took place and free speech was cut off in 1954 the communists took control over the farmland saying that they would make it more productive and these collective farms began to be developed and peasants began to work for the government and they began to control every aspects of every aspect of agriculture so no personal tools or animals all belonged to the government everything was shared of course there were people who resisted this but the bureaucracy was stronger than they were at the time. So very quickly, because of these collective farms, the crop output dropped and farmers had a third less food than the year before. By 1956, so again, 1949 is when the communists took over. So not very much long after, absolutely everything was collectivized and nationalized. So farmers even lost their freedom of of movement. They were compelled to sell their grain at state prices that were mandated by the state and the communist leaders in the villages ruled over them, again, they became laborers at the beck and call of someone else. This is something that I think is very interesting. The theoretical idea of communism is that everybody is equal, right? And it is supposed to benefit the poor, the theoretical idea. But so far in history, what we have seen happen is this. We have seen that the peasants have traded one ruler and landlords emperors for another ruler which is the communist party. I feel so bad for the peasants in this moment. They thought they were over feudalism and landlords but instead they just get a new one and in this case they have less freedom than before. So some political things going on at the time. In 1956 after Stalin's death Khrushchev, you'll remember him from the Russian episodes, Khrushchev denounces Stalin right and he gives this secret speech in Moscow And he details the horrors of Stalin's rule, and he attacks his cult of personality. And because Khrushchev was always belittled by Stalin as well, he kind of wants to be China's patron in this way that Stalin never was. And so he's like, oh, I'll teach him the ways he could be Mao's tutor. So he starts inviting Chinese people to come to Soviet schools. The interesting thing is that Mao always treated him with contempt Mao hated Stalin, but he also compared himself to him. So when Khrushchev starts this de-Stalinization, this thaw, Mao sees this as a challenge and undermining authority and criticism of Stalin's disastrous, you know, campaigning of collectivism. This makes Mao very upset because this is what he wants to do in China. So again, he, this is a complicated relationship between China and the Soviet Union. And when the Hungarians rose up against the Soviet Union in this major uprising that was violently suppressed by Moscow, the communists start around the world start getting pretty nervous, and Mao is in this group. They're worried that if the Soviet Union can't control its people, then maybe we can't either, right? So Mao actually sends out an initiative in China called the Hundred Flowers Campaign, where he basically starts encouraging criticism from the scholars in kind of an effort to let them voice their concerns because he's like I want to stay in power so maybe I gotta listen but this does not last hardly at all it lasted barely a few months and then he makes this massive u-turn and begins camp- condemning the very people that he gave the right to speak up in 1957 Mao targets intellectuals so again he starts eliminating all opposition ethnic minorities religious groups farmers artisans entrepreneurs, industrialists, teachers, scholars, doubters, even people within the party himself. He sends over half a million people to the gulag. The party unites behind the chairman. And by the end of 1957, he says the east wind will prevail against the west wind. And he basically says China is going to overtake Britain in the next 15 years in terms of economic production. And he starts this movement to move China forward into the next age. In 1958, Mao becomes very impatient that China isn't growing fast enough. And so he launches a program called the Great Leap Forward. The goal was to increase China's production since, again, it was very rural. So Mao says it's only going to take 15 years to industrialize China like these Western nations. We're going to industrialize it and we're going to take on agriculture. There was a complete frenzy to produce more steel And people were required to offer their pots and pans and tools and doorknobs and window frames to feed these backyard furnaces, which would not produce the quality of steel needed. And then they were useless. And there's these pictures of people hauling their kitchen stuff to the fires. And I can't help but wonder, what did they use to cook with their food after that? But in spring 1958, he also launches a massive water conservancy campaign, which launched for hundreds of millions of ordinary villagers were compelled to work for weeks on end on these remote projects, often without sufficient rest and food. And they also required large administration units in the countryside. And so they took these farm collectives and they brought them together to make these gigantic people's communes. And they would include over 20,000 households in these gigantic people's communes. And life in the commune was very military-like, communal dining, so everyone dined together, no more private kitchens, the children were cared for in a boarding school, boarding kindergartens, some communes had male housing and female housing, there was no family life, just work. And as one researcher and historian put it, this was very interesting, a work point system was used to calculate rewards while even money is abolished in some communes. Instead of making money, you earned points, calculated according to a complex system based on the average performance of the team as a whole, the job carried out, the age and gender of each worker. At the end of the year, the net income of each team was distributed among members according to need. And the surplus, or the extra, was divided according to the work points that each had accumulated.
1: So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
2: What's something you learned in history class that you feel wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. I believe that all history, no matter how good or bad, needs to be told. There are wars, massacres, battles, and entire historical events that are just not in our school's history books. Have you ever heard of Mary Bowser? I didn't think so. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. So come huddle around the campfire with me and get ready to hear the stories that you were robbed of. And get comfortable. We're going to be here a while. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.
0: Okay, so think about the last time you had to do a group project in school and how that went. Now imagine that on a scale of millions of people the amount of issues that happened are astonishing. People were desperate to hide anything that was uniquely theirs. And like little things, like the tools were collectivized, right? So they became fought over. They were mistreated. Tools that used to last 60 years now lasted one to two years. No one had to care for it because it wasn't theirs. There was no pride in ownership. And then in industries, we've talked about agriculture a little bit. In industry, Even greater output targets were given to these factories or foundries, these workshops, mines, power plants all over China. They were given quotas. And the machinery was so poorly maintained and received this relentless maltreatment. And so as everyone worked so feverishly to produce these quotas, like a mountain of substandard goods started to accumulate. So the products that they were making were horribly made. They were just crap. Half of the knitwear Half of the cotton goods were defective. The Shanghai clocks were sounding the alarm at random. There was no quality control. And so some other quotes quotes from these books I was reading was that living conditions in these factories became appalling, like inadequate toilet facilities existed in some of the living quarters, and so workers would urinate and defecate directly on the factory floor. Filth and stench permeated the pre- premises Lice and scabies were common. Chaos reigned on the ground. Women were horribly treated. They were afraid to be without each other. Lines for getting food were long. Dorms were cramped. Straw roofs leaked. Many miners had no shoes. They would go down the shafts barefoot. I could go on and on, but this great leap forward became very quickly one big, giant, hot mess. Many goods that were produced never actually reached a shop. They just ended up on the side of the road because they weren't um, being produced correctly because they were trying to reach these quotas. People worked endlessly, very little rest on goods that weren't even being used. Religion was done away with in the people's communes. So churches and temples and mosques were turned into workshops and dorms. And most collectives in the farms had their own private gulag or their private punishment camp. And we'll never know how many people ended up in those prisons. It is said that villagers were routinely carried off. So in 1959, one year into this, Things were looking so bad that attention was being drawn to it. And Mao turns against these local leaders down on the ground, and he was upset with them because many of them were submitting inflated targets. They weren't even true because he w- they didn't want to die, and so they were submitting information that wasn't even true. And so he is angry at them, but he still continues to press for collectivization high targets, and anyone with critical views is suppressed, and then mass starvation begins to be reported. This is a quote I thought was very good. It says, As famine spread, the very survival of an ordinary person came increasingly to depend on the ability to lie, charm, hide, steal, cheat, pilfer, forage, smuggle, trick, manipulate, or otherwise outwit the state. Survival depended on disobedience, but the many strategies of survival devised by people at all levels from farmers hiding the grain to local leaders cooking the books for the account. you know, They also tended to pro- prolong the life of the regime. They became a part of the system. People lied to survive, and as a consequence, information was distorted all the way up to the chairman. The planned economy required huge inputs of accurate data, yet at every level the targets were distorted, figures were inflated, and critical thought had to be constantly suppressed. Just about everybody from top to bottom stole during this famine. Collectivization forced everybody at some point or another to make grim moral compromises. End of quote. Some police reports are quite detailed in some areas of China, and human flesh was traded on the black market because people were starving so much. By 1960, the Soviet Union begins to see an issue here. So this is very quickly after... It actually withdraws its advisors from China, and mass starvation is in full effect. By the end of 1960, an emergency directive is issued. It requires villagers to now rest for eight hours a day. It restores local markets. And in the spring of 1961, party members go on inspection tours, and they start a full retreat from the campaign of the Great Leap Forward. Mao takes no responsibility, and they place the blame for the famine on the shoulders of the party, not him. He lashed out on all of his critics, placed blame everywhere else. Even though he did that, support for him did begin to wane, and he knew it. When it comes to the overall death toll of the Great Leap Forward, also known as Mao's Great Famine, researchers really aren't sure, but the range of deaths is somewhere from 15 to 45 million people because of these policies, and most of them were young people under 10 years old. So this was a man-made famine. Yet to this day, this era is still taught in China as, quote, the three years of natural disaster. All right, so pretty horrific stuff with the Great Leap Forward. This is corroborated by reports from the Communist Party and many people who lived through it. So this is in the late 1950s and early 1960s. So if you were a young adult during this time, you'd be in your 80s now. And also during this time in 1959... A large-scale revolt occurs in Tibet, which is a remote and mainly Buddhist territory in China. Mao suppresses this, and Beijing now claims sovereignty over Tibet. I won't go into details on this revolt right now, but if you've ever heard of the Dalai Lama escaping Tibet, this was when he did that. He's still alive today, and he has still never been back to Tibet. So, little side point. All right, so as I mentioned, the greatly forward... Ends quickly, but the results last a very long time. Millions of people die of starvation or by being disappeared, taken to camps, etc. As I mentioned, Mao knows that his hold is weakening. There's a lot of infighting within the Central Committee, which is kind of the main head honchos of the Communist Party. He even has some of his closest advisors start turning against him. And he wants to settle some personal scores. He's aging. He wants to solidify his place in history. And also, you'll remember that back in 1956, Khrushchev denounced Stalin and even started pursuing some coexistence with the West, right? And Mao is upset about this. He begins to have more strong statements about communism, pro-communism, and that the people need to have a full... Cultural revolution to change them so that China does not become like the Soviet Union, which is starting to, in his mind, kind of weaken and get soft toward the West. So Mao writes a book called The Quotations from Chairman Mao in early 1964. And it is a pocket-sized collection of Mao's sayings and thoughts. It's almost all political. And it's called The Little Red Book. And every man and woman and child were given this book and were to keep it on them. And so by June of 1966, a complete cultural revolution begins. And Mao's focus is on the class struggle. He has an intense push for rooting out all counter-revolutionaries again. Anyone disagreeing with him within the party, intellectuals, artists, rich people, capitalists, you name it, this cultural revolution began. And the revolution started with Chairman Mao urging young people to join a revolution to seize power, this is a direct quote seize power and overthrow the rich people. the rich power holders wanted to overthrow. So it was a class upheaval yet again, completely re-educate or purge the country of anyone who, who's upper class or believe differently than him. The first phase of this revolution meant that there were revolutionary party committees that took over the party in the state. Mao went straight to students. He saw them as his most reliable allies, and they were impressionable, they were easy to manipulate, they were eager to fight, they wanted more of a politically active role, and these young people, they would range from 14 years old into their 20s, they called themselves the Red Guards, and Mao gave them license to basically denounce all authority. They were told to, and I quote, rebel, to rebel is justified. So these soldiers, these Red Guards, began to oversee schools and factories, and government units. And the propaganda begins to hit really hard for the general population. These huge propaganda trucks with a little red book begin to be distributed. The Red Guards begin this campaign to destroy all remnants of old society. They were actually given free transportation. And Mao told them to destroy all old ideas, old culture, old customs, and old habits of exploiting the classes. So basically destroying the four olds. I find this so interesting that he went after young kids to do this work because they went after everybody, their teachers and principals, kids they didn't like. It, it wasn't like they strictly stuck to the upper class or the Communist Party members that they didn't like. They targeted anyone that they didn't like because they were young kids with underdeveloped brains and they were given weapons and unlimited unlimited power. And personally, I find that terrifying. Waves of violence started. Honestly, some of the stories I read made me feel sick to my stomach. But I will give you a glimpse into how horrible it was with a few stories. The Red Guards would go into schools and they would target kids from families who had money and, or had had, I should say, had had money. And they would shave their heads humiliate them, beat them. Some teachers and principals were forced to drink ink, have their heads shaved. They were beaten on stages in front of their students. And in a culture where honor and age have always been revered, this would be devastating for a person and would change the whole view of a person to themselves. And it moved on to the general population outside of the schools. The Red Guards began changing street names and tailors or barbers who made jeans or who published books that weren't necessarily approved by the government they were humiliated and beaten and forced to close down and red guards began attacking ordinary people forcibly cutting their hair cutting their pants if they found a peddler who was just trying to sell their goods they would call them capitalists and they would hurt them or kill them book burnings were common. Some book burnings lit up the sky for days. They targeted libraries In Shanghai Red Guards destroyed thousands of books from a library that had over 200,000 volumes from 1847 all the way up till then. It all went up in flames. Public monuments were attacked. They toppled um, foreign churches. They would burn ancient pagodas. The organ of St. Michael's Cathedral was smashed with hammers and the windows were shattered. Even cemeteries were targeted, particularly the graves of foreigners. They would attack flower shops. They saw flowers as ornamental, wasteful. Flowers at funerals became prohibited. Executions of anyone counter-revolutionary or seen as counter-revolutionary were public, thousands of people watching. But the most frightful development where the house searches, and they would go searching for anything. They'd just show up at your house and open the door. They would search for articles of worship. They would search for anything luxurious, um, any kind of literature that was not approved by the state, foreign books written in different languages, any hidden gold, any foreign currency, any signs of a previous decadent lifestyle, they would go after it. And they would categorize your family based on its education level, your family history. And the thing was that the party had paid for so many of these people that they were now targeting. They they were Communist Party members in many cases. They had paid for them to travel and learn and work in these foreign com- company or countries. And then they were turned against. They would rip open mattresses, crawl under the floor, these red guards. And so parents started to never talk politics in front of their kids because the kids that were allowed to go to school, we'll talk about that in a minute, but they were asked by their teachers to snitch on their parents. And so there was this disconnect between parents and kids because they wanted to protect themselves and their families. And this continues well into the 1980s, the results of this. Many people were so afraid of the Red Guards that they would burn all their family pictures to avoid questions about family money and wealth. And every day, people, during this cultural revolution, people would stand around and read these posters that were plastered all over the walls in their villages and cities. And they were usually like anonymous denunciations of Particular people. There would be news bulletins on who was going to be targeted. And this is a quote I thought was very interesting. It says Some targets of the campaigns, knowing that they would be next, they would wait in bed, fully clothed, waiting for their turn. Every night there were terrifying sounds of loud knocks on the door, objects breaking, students shouting, children crying. But most ordinary people had no idea when the Red Guards would appear and what harmless possessions might be seen as suspicious. They lived in fear.
2: History never says goodbye. It just says, see you later. Edward Galliano was right when he said that. Events keep happening over and over again in some form. And that's the reason I produce the podcast, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. What is it? We take stories of history and apply them to the events of today to help you perhaps understand them better. We are also part of Airwave Media Network. I've been doing the program since 2006. That's a long time, and the show has a long name. My history can beat up your politics. Find me wherever you get podcasts.
0: Driven by this fear, people start informing on their neighbors, right? It creates this culture within a culture that's also dangerous, Works of art, musical instruments, fancy linens, all destroyed. The amount of waste was astounding. In fact, in some factories, certain patterns that were not appropriate for this cultural revolution were just left to waste. If toothpaste bottles had like fairy princesses on them, they were not allowed to be produced anymore, all wasted. This destruction of anything old, even old within the last 20 years, it didn't last actually very long in terms of the destruction, but it had very lasting consequences. Makeup was gone. Plain clothing was preferred. Same haircut for everyone. Cheap, plain meals at restaurants. Bookstores couldn't offer anything other than the Little Red Book and other writings of the chairman or party members. Whole categories of people became unemployed. There were florists and greengrocers and fruit sellers and tanners and coppersmiths and papermakers and photographers, painters, dressmakers. The vast majority of the people who were affected negatively by this were, again, the poor people. So during this time, a cult, a personality cult of Mao also develops. And no one speak wants to speak against Mao or his ideas. People began to pray to him, tell him their thoughts. Twice a day, they sang songs to him and would pledge allegiance to the party while looking at a picture of Mao. Slogans were everywhere, like our great teacher, great leader, great commander, great helmsman, Long live Chairman Mao. There were quotes painted on the outside of buses and cars and vans. And all senses were bombarded. So while you walked down the street, there were loudspeakers reading the works of Mao. And they would just spew the same quotations, high volume, revolutionary songs, all on the radio. By June of 1967, China was in chaos. There was factional fighting. Rival red guards began to fight each other. Crime is rampant. It just mob justice took over. It got so quickly out of hand with the violence that the revolution had to be put in retreat, and so a push for unity began to take place. By 1968, the campaign kind of cooled for the Cultural Revolution. They dimmed the loudspeakers, and later that year there was a, again a cleansing of the ranks in the Communist Party, and it was absolutely terrifying. For millions of people were persecuted during that time being cleansed yet again. People are resilient, though, and a silent revolutions began to take place quietly as people began to pull themselves out of this destitution that had just happened to them. And they did what they could to kind of subvert the planned economy. So the old world was kind of making a comeback, but it was all trying to be kept quiet. So for example, people started selling silk kites again and ordinary people became underground artists, and religion went underground as well. They started having little clusters of worshipers meeting together. their house churches, and it was just privacy, all about privacy. This was not easy to have these little fragile islands of freedom, but They would just quietly worship in their home, even with this giant picture of Mao hanging over them. And folk culture also remained resilient, and some temples began to be rebuilt. Also, the family endured such attack during this time because these households were divided because of politics and members of the Red Guard and these senseless and unpredictable purges. And families were broken up and taken to different places, but overall it seems as though an old code of loyalty still survived during this time and this thaw that happened was followed by a freeze and some reversals were made and Mao starts to age pretty significantly and a man named Deng Xiaoping kind of steps in more and more and in 1979 Mao dies of natural causes and a new era in Chinese history is born. Let's talk about the results of this revolution and how Mao is viewed today for it. State ownership channeled every person's production and living needs. Under state planning, it allowed the regime to penetrate every pore of society. It truly became during this time a totalitarian regime. Farm production fell during the Cultural Revolution. Factory work grounded to a halt. Unemployment 10 x And during the roughly 10 years that this revolution was happening, the violence was mostly in the beginning with the Red Guards, but it still kept going for a while. And about 2 million people were killed, but many more lives were ruined. Their characters were ruined or challenged. And there was this loss of dignity and also a loss of trust in human relationships because people began to turn against each other. Also schools stopped normal operation for a long long time. It is said that some by some people that up to an entire generation didn't get a high school degree. So how do people in China talk about this revolution? Keep in mind that many people who lived through the Cultural Revolution are still alive and well today, and so there are different perspectives on it. Some people did very well and some were crushed. The Cultural Revolution took a life on a life of its own. No no one could have predicted or anticipated what was going to happen. If you go to China today, you will see pictures of Mao in a lot of places. I remember when I went back there in the mid-2000s, he was everywhere in people's houses and government buildings. But from what I read, the feelings of ordinary Chinese people toward Mao and this cultural revolution are pretty varied. There are long lines to view his body, which is on display in a huge square called Tiananmen Square. And some people see him as a god still. This cult of personality still continues. Others just go to make sure that he really is dead because they hated him so much. So opinions vary. Generally he's seen as a very important leader in China who made significant contributions to the nation but also had a dark side. He led China and his advisors and the committee led China from 1949 until 1979. And that's a very long period of time where he made significant changes to the culture and to the economy of China. Those who admire him often remember him less for the Great Famine or the Great Leap Forward or the Cultural Revolution. And instead, they focus on his hand in the Long March and in winning the Civil War against the Nationalists. Whew, okay, we're going to stop there. Next episode, part three, we will talk about China from 1972-ish until today. We'll backtrack a little bit from before Mao dies and we'll talk about how China has grown into the superpower that it is today. There are a million takeaways that I could talk about for this episode, but I think the main one I want to end on is I find it very interesting that as humans, we have this tendency to categorize each other and swing the pendulum very quickly. For example, here in China, we see how the poor masses were treated horribly for a very, very long time. And when they get into power, they turn on the wealthy and treat them the same or worse than they themselves were treated. It's this horrible cycle. And I think this is why we absolutely must resist the urge to villainize each other. When we do this, when we villainize each other, I think we risk extreme human damage in terms of violence, but also in terms of the way we see each other, the way we perceive ourselves. And the effects of the cultural revolution are still with China. Chinese people have a unique culture, especially because of what they've went through. So sometimes I think of those of us who have lived through the COVID-19 pandemic, how will this shape the way that we see ourselves and we see the world for the rest of our lives? The same goes for these people who have lived through this revolution. I think that we absolutely cannot afford to villainize each other. We just cannot afford it. So that's my main takeaway. Thank you so much for listening. Episode three is available now. I hope you go give it a listen. If you learn anything from these episodes, please share, review the podcast. I'm so grateful Um, you're helping me grow. So thank you. Thank you. And let's go out and make the world a little wiser.